with an unusual story this morning. We're in a series of messages we're calling Stories of Jesus, and this is an unusual one. Um, boys and girls, I'm going to tell a couple of stories this morning that are a little different, um, but I want to say from the beginning, well, we're going to have Kingston read uh, the scripture in a second with Miss Allison, and uh, Kingston's going to be afraid when, when it first starts because the story is a little bit strange. But there is absolutely nothing for us to be afraid of. We're going to find out because Jesus is involved. I don't know if you know what this is, but I'm going to use this as an illustration this morning. This is a surge protector. And surge protector, this gets plugged into the wall, and then this lays on the floor, and then all of the electrical instruments, sometimes in your house and, and up here on the stage, our stage is serviced by a surge protector. So all of the electric instruments get plugged in here and they get power from this surge protector. Now, I don't know why, but uh, I don't know how, but this surge protector is somehow able to also not just provide power to these instruments, but it, it protects from overpower or underpower or bad power if there are bursts of electricity that, that could possibly harm the electrical instruments that are plugged in here, the surge protector will protect from that. So this surge protector provides access to power for all of the electrical instruments that are plugged into it, and it protects them from bad power. In fact, uh, Nate's electric guitar up here. If Nate's electric guitar was not plugged in to any surge protector, we wouldn't hear any sound from him. Jesus is like a surge protector. We gain access to God's power, and we also get protected from inappropriate power through him. So let's watch Kingston read our scripture this morning. This will be Kingston and Miss Allison, and we're reading from Luke chapter 4. Kingston, are you here? Oh, Kingston. Miss Allison, I'm so glad you're here. Why are you shaking? I am supposed to read a Bible story this morning, but there's an evil spirit in it, and I'm so scared. Can you read it for me? Of course I can. What verses are we reading? It's Luke 4, 31 through 37. There. Oh. Ah, I know this story. It's not as scary as you think. Wait until you hear what happens. Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. There too, the people were amazed at his teachings, for he spoke with authority. Once, when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, cried out shouting, go away. Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet, come out of that man, he ordered. At that, the demon threw the man to the floor as the crowd watched. Then it came out of him without hurting him further. Amazed, the people exclaimed, what authority and power this man's words possess. Even evil spirits obey him and they flee at his command. 
the news about Jesus spread through every village in the entire region. Wow, that's actually a really great story. The demon was afraid of Jesus and did just what he said. So Jesus is the boss of the spirits. That's right. And did you know that when we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that he gives us the power to be the boss of spirits too? Oh, yes. We have his Holy Spirit, so I don't have to be afraid of anything. Thanks, Miss Allison. Oh, you're so welcome, Kingston. So during the Christmas season, we read one of the stories from the very beginning of Luke's biography of Jesus. And it was about Jesus' birth. And then last Sunday, we read a story from Luke's biography of Jesus about the time when Jesus was 12 years old. From the very beginning of his account of Jesus' life, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is in control, that we gain access to God's power through Jesus, just like the surge protector. We gain access to what the Father wants to give us through Jesus, and we find out from the story that Allison read for us this morning that Jesus is able to protect us from improper power. Okay, in the story, we see his, his control through his authority. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. Some of you may know that. And one of my favorite Greek words, I want you to see this, is exousia. I've got it written here in Greek, and then underneath it, it's in English. Uh, the word exousia means power or authority or juris jurisdiction. So when a Roman ruler in the ancient world was, was given the right to rule over a certain area of the Roman world, they were given jurisdiction over that area by the Roman Senate or by uh, the Roman emperor. They would go and rule. They had Roman exousia. In the, in, G, in the same way, Jesus has exousia over heaven and earth. We see that, first of all, we see his authority and the way in which he dealt with God's message. He taught them in the synagogue from the scriptures, and it was their habit to typically to gather uh, on the Sabbath, and, and Jesus gathered with them this particular day in Capernaum. And, and typically they would have opened up a passage of Scripture, and, and then someone would have gotten up on uh, any particular Sabbath day and explained or expounded on that passage of Scripture. They invited this particular Sunday, or Saturday in their case, to have Jesus stand up and explain the Scripture. And, and they probably did so because they had heard things about Jesus. They'd heard how amazing he was. Jesus had even been to Capernaum before this and had done some amazing things. So the, the synagogue likely would have been packed. People would have been clamoring to hear what Jesus had to say. And, and here they did. And, and they were amazed because he spoke with authority. And the word is exousia. Now, typically, when the rabbis taught, they would make an argument based on what other rabbis had said. So when a typical rabbi stood up on a typical Sabbath day in the synagogue, the rabbis would, would uh, argue and agree or disagree what they 
had heard and read from other rabbis, ah, uh, Rabbi Avi believes that we should not be allowed to bring grain into our barn on the Sabbath day. That would violate uh, Sabbath regulations. But, but Rabbi Benjamin, he believes that if a storm is coming, we should be allowed to move the grain into our barn because that will protect our family and its resources and, and thus it will honor God. And, and based on what we've read in our passage today, I believe, etc., etc. But Jesus did not teach this way. He was very down to earth. He used illustrations about fishing and grapes, illustrations from their everyday lives, and he was very direct. He didn't bother quoting other rabbis. It was as if he had a direct line to God. And they had never heard anyone teach like this. He also demonstrated his authority, and this is the truly amazing part, over the spiritual world. Remember the story. Jesus was teaching, and all of a sudden, he was interrupted forcefully and, and shockingly. Jesus of Nazareth, you know, what do you want with us? Have you come here to destroy us? A, a wild man was yelling in the middle of the synagogue. Now, how unsettling must that have been? I mean, what did, what did he even mean? Have you come to destroy us by us? Does he mean us in the synagogue? Or does he mean all of these voices swirling in my own head? And imagine what happens in the next moment. I mean, fear, uh, confusion, uh, disquiet. Some people would have felt timid. Some people would have been shocked. Some would have been angry or embarrassed. It was all there and much more. Uh, what do we do now? What will this guy do next? What will Jesus do next? I guarantee you there were several people in that synagogue who felt exactly the way Kingston felt at the beginning of the video. And Jesus responded. He said, be quiet. Come out of him. And the man was thrown to the ground. And after that, he seemed to be perfectly fine. Now that is a crazy story, right? Well, we've got some really important stuff to learn from this story, I promise you. But before we go there, before we uh, go any further, let's, let's retrace how we got here. How did we get to this synagogue and Capernaum with Jesus standing up and expounding on this piece of scripture? Now, I want you to remember last week we talked about Jesus growing up in the village of Nazareth. And I want to show you a couple of maps Mike, if you would bring, this is a map of a larger Israel at the, at the time of Jesus. And you see, if you can see in the red, toward the bottom, Judea, around that is where Jerusalem was. And way up where that blue square is, that's up in the area of Galilee. I think there's another slide with another, yes, that, that zeroes in. So you see a larger view on the right and an even larger view on the left. If you'll, if you'll identify Nazareth there on the left, it's kind of to the left of the Sea of Galilee. If you go back to the map on the right, you can see where Capernaum is at the top of the Sea of Galilee. So uh, Nazareth was actually in the Galilean hills. It was about 1,200 feet above sea level. And at the time of Jesus, it was a small, sleepy village of about four or 500 people. Now, Nazareth was far, as you saw from the map, Nazareth was far from Jerusalem and from the seats of power. So it's unlikely when Jesus was growing up that he heard very much about the politics of the day, about the Roman authorities. But, but Luke 
gives us a quick overview of what was going on in the world at that time. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and check this out. He gives sort of the chain of command of, of Roman governorship. He even covers who the high priests were in Jerusalem at the time. The, the person I don't want you to miss in this is uh, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the Roman ruler who'd been given exousia, he had been given authority over Galilee where Jesus lived. And Jesus would have certainly known something about him in particular. A couple of things about uh, Herod Antipas. Number one, Herod Antipas was an uh, extensive builder. They're still uncovering archaeological sites today in Israel that Herod built at the time of Jesus. Secondly, you should know that Herod, Herod was known for his terrible cruelty. He did some awful things during his Rome. Rain. So even though the Galileans were, were far from the constant conflicts with Roman authorities in Jerusalem, they would have experienced the, the backhand of Roman cruelty from Herod Antipas. So we can guess that this cruelty would have inspired Sabbath after Sabbath sermons and expositions about the need for the Messiah to come and overthrow Herod and, and the whole Roman lot. And, and Jesus would have heard these sermons as a boy. Uh, as a boy, as a youth, did, did Jesus travel much? Probably not. Uh, other than the yearly trip to Jerusalem for Passover, it's very doubtful that Jesus left Galilee. And he probably wouldn't have, many times have even left the Nazareth area in particular. Did Jesus apprentice to his father Joseph as a carpenter? Probably. This was the typical pattern for especially young boys in this day and age. So did Jesus actually practice carpentry? We don't know. He may have. In fact, he, he probably did. He didn't begin his public traveling ministry until his very late 20s, early 30s. You know, I've often wondered if uh, after Jesus was killed and then resurrected how wild would it be that story begins to pass how wild would it be for some little family in Nazareth to be able to say this is a table that Jesus built anyway uh, at some point in his late 20s Jesus's cousin John that we know in the Bible as John the Baptist John began to exercise his own ministry in the lower Jordan Valley and this would have been quite a ways from the Galilee area it was about a day's walk outside of Jerusalem and John had spent some time before his ministry in a sort of semi-isolation out in the desert. It may be that John was there with a group of people known as the Essenes. Uh, the Essenes were, were a really devoted uh, monk-like uh, Jewish community, and John may have studied with them for a while. In fact, it's even possible that Jesus was with the Essenes for a while. Uh, we don't know even how well Jesus and John knew one another. They certainly at least knew of one another. They were cousins, but we don't know if they were close. Anyway, at some point, probably around 28, 29, 30, Jesus went out to where John was preaching. We don't know how much of a journey that was. If he was in Nazareth, it would have been quite a trek. But he came out to hear John preach, presumably, and he came out to be baptized by John. Now, remember they were cousins. And uh, John seems to have already believed by this point in his own teaching ministry that Jesus was something extraordinary. Had he heard stories of, from his mom about Jesus' birth? Or, or had he heard uh, 
about Jesus' temple visit when Jesus was 12? Had he heard some of the stories that were beginning to happen around Jesus in the Galilean area? We just don't know. But, but John had been telling people that through his ministry, he was a preparer. His was a preparation ministry. In other words, John believed that he was getting Israel ready for something greater, the coming of God's man, maybe even the coming of the Messiah. And we get the sense that by the time Jesus came out to John, John believed that this greater one who was to come was actually Jesus himself. Now, this is a really big deal. Remember that the Jews as a people had been waiting on the Messiah and telling stories about the Messiah for hundreds of years. And John seems to believe that it was his cousin. I've never thought that about any of my cousins. Anyway, John reluctantly baptized Jesus. He actually says at one point, hey, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus insisted, and, and when John baptized him, they both had this incredible experience. There was a heavenly voice and a, a dove comes down and lands on Jesus or, or lands around him. And all of that for both of them just confirms this sense that there's something extraordinary happening, happening in Jesus. He's God's man. Now, if you were a non-Jewish reader in Luke's first audience, and most of his readers were, uh, then you would have been very fascinated by this story. You, you would have heard mythical stories many times before, but this sounds different. This doesn't sound like a myth. It's, it sounds like uh, these are actual accounts. Clearly something remarkable is happening in this guy, Jesus. God, whatever he is, is involved in some way. This would have been your impression already, and we're in the fourth chapter. But if you were a Jewish reader, now you would have heard about Jesus. But if this was your first time hearing the baptism story, well, you would have been stunned. You, you, you would have been overwhelmed. And you would have been asking yourself some uncomfortable questions because you're being told by others in your community this Jesus guy was a goof. Then, right after this, right after the baptism, Jesus went into the desert himself to spend time with God. I believe that he just needed some time to process what had just happened to him and, and kind of what had happened to him through the course of his life. And out in the desert, he had this one-on-one -on -one encounter with the devil. Now, we don't know if he had had this kind of encounter before this. We don't know much about it, really. But we do know that the devil came to Jesus in a shockingly straightforward way. And he tried to tempt him and to actually negotiate with him. And Jesus resisted him at every point. So that, by this point, early in the story, if, if we're Luke's first century audience, Luke has already convinced us that Jesus is the man. And, and our story this, this morning, the one, the one that Allison read for us, as crazy it is, as it is, it doesn't completely shock us because we've already seen that something wild is happening in this guy, Jesus. So, after the desert experience, Jesus returned to uh, Nazareth, his hometown, and, and af after the baptism, uh, he preached in Nazareth on the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath in the synagogue there as well, and he wasn't received well, honestly. They, they threw him out of the city. So he, he left Nazareth, and he went to Capernaum. 
Now, some translations will say he went down to Capernaum, and, that, and that's actually an apt description. It's accurate. While, while Nazareth was up in the hills at, at 1,200 feet, uh, Capernaum was down by the Sea of Galilee, actually below sea level. Capernaum was a much bigger town. It was the center of, of trade, in, or one of the centers of trade in the Galilean area at the time. And uh, when we visited Israel last year, we went to Capernaum. It, it's a really extensive, very cool archaeological site. Mike, bring that up if you would. There are a couple of pictures of just sort of the village. This, uh, this is a partial view of part of the village. If you look kind of the upper left side of the picture, that structure is the synagogue. And then down below it, all of the ruins, those are uh, alleyways and homes. Next picture, Mike. This gives you a close-up. And it was kind of shocking to me. You know, I could have stood here and just looked all day. It was kind of shocking to me. You can sort of see alleyways and, and dwellings set out. And I think these homes were in the neighborhood of two or 300 square feet per home. The next two pictures are of the synagogue itself. And inside the synagogue, you see these beautiful columns that would have lined the inside of the synagogue. Next picture, Mike. And then there would have been an open square in the middle with those rows of seats on either side. Women would have sat on one side, men on the other side. Now, this is the place where Jesus comes to speak on this particular Sabbath. And it doesn't seem like at this point in the story, Jesus had any disciples yet, at least not officially. But they were, there were probably a few of his future students in the synagogue that day. I mean, Peter and Andrew, at least, were from Capernaum. And they're in this synagogue with most of Capernaum in attendance. Jesus was teaching when he was confronted by this person under the influence of an evil spirit. Like we said, crazy. So what do we make of this story and what does it mean? Well, uh, let's, let's look at it this way, you all. There are two mistakes that we can make in looking at this story that we should not make. And honestly, at times, I've made both of these mistakes, sometimes at different times on the same day. Two mistakes that we should not make when we encounter this story. Mistake number one is to discount it, disbelieve it. This is a very easy mistake to make. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann, you don't need to remember that name, but he was a very influential German theologian who studied the Bible and studied God, and he taught and wrote in the middle of the 20th century. He said this, no one can avail themselves of electricity, television, and modern antibiotics and still believe in a world inhabited by angels and demons. He believed that we needed to, uh, what he called, demythologize the Bible. We needed to take the Bible and take all of the fanciful stories out of it because, of course, they aren't true. Now, if you think back on your education, some of you are still in the middle of it, boys and girls, but uh, if you think back to high school or for those of you who are able to go to college, college, or some of you have degrees beyond college, most of what we were taught leaned in the direction of Boltmann's thinking. We've been trained to believe what we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, and reproduce. And honestly, this also confirms our natural bent. Our reason often supports this kind of conclusion. And whether we intend for it to or not, this puts us in control. This is what I mean. It puts our reason 
on top of the food chain. If, if I can't make sense of it, it must not be true. If I've never seen it, it must not exist. If I can't explain it, it can't be right. I'm on top of the food chain, my reason. If this is how you approach this story, I get it. But you should know that the eyewitnesses are unanimous in affirming these kind of events happening around Jesus repeatedly. And I want to issue a warning this morning about this mistake. We'll hit this a couple of times today before we finish. But uh, if, if the universe is larger and more complex than you and I can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and reproduce, and it is, then we're missing critical data in every decision we make and critical ingredients in every circumstance we encounter if we discount this. If the universe is more than this, and you don't recognize that, then you're missing a huge amount of information. Eric Knox is one of our uh, elders here at Gateway, and Eric has been on this kick lately of baking bread, and uh, it's stinking good. And he's trying to get perfect at it. And this is how Eric does things. He takes up a habit and he wants to be perfect at it. So he made for me a loaf of brioche bread. I'm going to try to show it to the camera and also to you. This is as close as I want any of you to get to it because I'm going to eat it later. Uh, it's really delicious and, and beautiful. It, it's, it's a remarkably beautiful loaf of bread, isn't it? He also made... Another loaf for me because Eric is just a great guy that looks like this. Can you see the difference between the two? Uh, this is edible. I mean, it's bread. You could eat this. It's not as good. It's not anywhere near as pretty. This, this loaf of bread has everything in it that this loaf of bread does, except yeast. And so it didn't rise. And because of that missing critical ingredient, you end up with bread, but not the right bread, not exactly right. If we discount the spiritual world, the spiritual part of reality, we are missing critical ingredients in every circumstance we face. Second mistake that we can make when we confront a story like this is to exaggerate it. We either exaggerate our knowledge of it or we exaggerate the details of it. Uh, many years ago, I was in, uh, I think I was in high school at the time. I was in Charleston, South Carolina with a friend, and I don't remember why I was in Charleston, but I was in Charleston. And one of the nights that we were there, we decided that we would go see a movie. Uh, it was a very scary movie about this kind of thing, and it was done very, very elaborately with all kinds of special effects, and it scared the willies out of me. And here's the terrible part, and probably the reason why I remember this so profoundly. We were camping for the weekend. So we left that movie <laughs> and went to a campsite in the woods, pitch black dark, and my friend is making noises all night long, reminiscent of the movie, scaring me to death. This, this actually had a, an impact on how I thought about these kinds of things, these kinds of stories, probably for years. Uh, sometimes our thoughts about the spiritual world are informed by exaggerations and not by the truth. Sometimes exaggerations of our own making, uh, sometimes they're from Hollywood or something like Hollywood, and sometimes they come from teachings that we've heard. 
I heard a teacher a number of years ago do a talk about the topic of demons. And he did a a good job as far as I could tell. He he kind of went through uh, the, the biographies of Jesus and he was making notes of the encounters that Jesus had had with with the spiritual world and, and drawing some conclusions. And then he went through some of the teaching from Paul and Peter about uh, encounters with the spiritual world and, and what the spiritual world is. And then he took us on a fanciful journey. He said lots of things that were speculation. Some of it was wildly exaggerated. Some of it was strange. For example, he said that um, often when a demon leaves a person... They leave the same way they came in. So if someone has the demon of cigarette smoking, the demon will leave through a long exhale. I don't have any idea where he got any of that. For those of us who uh, lean in this direction, either by what we've been taught or through our own imagining, let's remember The world is much larger and much more complex than we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and reproduce. But the spiritual world, which is real and which is populated with thinking beings, that world is mostly hidden from us. Paul acknowledged that we see through a glass dimly. We barely see. And if we add definition that the Bible does not give us, then we are in danger of pursuing superstition and not faith. If we add definition that the Bible doesn't give us, then we're in danger of pursuing superstition and not faith. Don't add definition based on your imagination. This makes a mockery of our faith. Listen, the New Testament does not invite you and I to take a wild, blind leap into the bizarre. The New Testament invites us to reason and to meditate and to see, and based on that, to move well beyond what we can see in the same direction by faith. So, to one side of our tendencies, let's remind ourselves that the spiritual world is real. The New Testament talks about demons and angels, by the way, more than it talks about love or sin. It's it's entirely arrogant to believe that we've got a handle on all of reality. That's Reality is incredibly complex, and it includes things like a demon-possessed man in a synagogue, and it includes also Jesus, the man, being in control over that demon, over everything on the stage. And to the other side of our tendencies, let's not try to invent. Let's not try to remove all of the mystery from it. We can't. We have access to very limited information, and, and with what we don't know, we trust God who showed us repeatedly through the life and ministry of Jesus, the son, that there's nothing for us to be afraid of. Allison was exactly right. Kingston didn't need to be afraid. So let me summarize this by uh, taking you back to, um, for some of you, you're not there yet, but let me take you back to high school math class for a quick illustration. Now, you young boys and girls, you can kind of follow along with this, even though you haven't covered this in math yet, but I want to show you this equation. Mike, pull up the first slide. Now, there are some rules for dealing with an equation like this. If your math teacher wanted you to get the solution to this, they would tell you, you need to solve what's inside the parentheses and then multiply it by what's outside the parentheses. Those of you who are 100 years old like me, you remember this? Okay, so inside the parentheses, outside the parentheses. So you would say 2 plus 2 plus 3 
minus 1 plus 4 equals 10. And if you ignored everything that's outside of the parentheses, if you just deal with what's in your little parentheses, then you'll get a solution. You'll answer the problem, but it will be the wrong answer. You'll solve the problem if you ignore this area of life altogether. If you ignore the spiritual world and its influence on you, you'll make decisions, things will happen, but you'll come to the wrong solution. The right solution, next slide, Mike, is when you multiply the outside of the parentheses, the inside of the parentheses, by what's outside the parentheses, and you get 50. God and Satan are involved in every decision and in everything that happens in our lives. If we do not account for this factor, then we're missing a critical part of the equation. In every decision we make, we must be asking, what does God want? And what is Satan about? In every trial in our lives, we will not make it through consistently and healthily. We won't come through with the right stuff if we're not considering what God is doing and how the devil might be involved. And in, with every temptation in our lives, we have to be asking, what part of this is my weakness what part of this is the enemy pressing me? This has to be considered, but it must not be exaggerated. Some of us find the devil as the source of everything around us. And that's not how Jesus saw it. I want you to imagine our equation again one more time. For those of us who tend in the direction of exaggerating this stuff, I, listen, this isn't a small thing. For us, instead of ignoring what's outside the parentheses, we can actually exaggerate what's outside the parentheses. Show us the next equation, Mike. And, and we, still, we still come to the wrong conclusion. We still come to the wrong solution. I want you to know honestly that I have often struggled with this aspect. I, I, I am as tied to my reason as anybody I know. It has been a daily victory of Jesus to be able to move me to a point of faith. Gateway has heard me say that before, but it is absolutely true. And often when I hear this story or stories like this in, in today, in modern age, and this is still happening, I, my first response, unfortunately, is often, really? Even when I read these stories in the New Testament, sometimes I feel, what? Even though, even though this has happened to me. Those of you who've known me for a while have probably heard me tell about this. Very early in my ministry, I was preaching one Sunday morning. Uh, it was a church before Gateway. Our congregation was very small. There was a young couple that came into church that Sunday, small room, small group. Never met them before. It was a, there were a lot of children in our church at the time. Um, and it was really, for some reason, very, very powerful Sunday morning. At the end of my preaching, I was about to pray, and I heard a pretty dramatic reaction from the back of the room. I looked up, and the reaction just got more and more dramatic, and it eventually ended up probably being something very much like the reaction that Jesus got in the synagogue. Uh, I looked around the room, and everyone there, including my wife, Diane, including me, was ter terrified and confused. Uh, I had no idea what to do. I, I wasn't sure what was going on, but I had an idea because I had read the book. No idea what I should do. 
I'm kind of the guy in charge at this point. I'm supposed to have an answer. I don't know the answer, but I've read the book. So I said, let's just do what the book says. So I asked two guys in our church. If I looked at the group, and there are boys and girls there. And I said, everybody's okay. Uh, you know, God's here, and he's in control. So I asked two of the men in our church if they would just go over and uh, put their hand on this woman and say, in the name of Jesus, be still. They looked at me like I was an idiot. But they did it. They went over and they laid their hand on her and they said, in the name of Jesus, be still. And she went completely limp. She got completely still and peaceful. After a little while, we dismissed the congregation. She came down front with a few of us. We started praying for her again and we got this dramatic reaction again. And then the same thing, we pray over her in Jesus' name and something happened. I can't explain it. Something very dramatic happened to her and in her. And I want you to know the truth. Her life was changed after that for the better. I think this stuff is more common than we think because we're so good at writing it off or ignoring it or explaining it away. We don't see it, but it was strikingly common in Jesus's ministry. Why? Well, we don't know for sure, but maybe because God the Son, the ultimate authority, the, the, the surge protector in heaven and in earth was on the scene and the spirit world knew it. That, that this, this spirit, this evil spirit in our story says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. I, I like what R.C. Sproul said about this. He said, demons have very good theology. They know the truth. They know the truth about God. They know the truth about Jesus. They even know the truth about their own destinies. The problem, Sproul explained, is not that they don't know the tr truth. The problem is that they just hate it. They just hate it. And that means they hate us. Um, if, you're, if you're outside spiritually looking in at Gateway this morning and looking in at this and this strange story. I know this sounds bizarre, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. And it, it doesn't mean that if you discount this, you, you do this at your own peril. Many years ago, we had a, a couple come to Gateway. Uh, they were here for a while and ended up moving. Um, she would tell us the story on a number of occasions. The first time she was giving her testimony to a bunch of women from Gateway, that when she was very young, um, she and her now husband, but uh, I think they, either right after high school, she got pregnant. And they weren't sure that uh, they were going to get married, and uh, they didn't know what uh, they wanted to do, and it's a confusing and a very, very dark time for her. And slowly, over the course of just a few weeks, she completely withdrew from her friends. She withdrew from her families. It got very, very dark. And, and, and just the tunnel got smaller and smaller and smaller. And she made the decision to end her pregnancy. So uh, they made an appointment in this clinic that was in another town. And they get up early one morning and they drive to this other town. And she's going to end her pregnancy there. And she's in the waiting room. And the woman behind the a counter that is registering people in says that there is a phone call for her in another town at a place where no one knows she is doing an act that 
is an act of desperation and darkness and she doesn't know what else to do. And it's a phone call for her. She goes to the phone and answers it and it's her mother. So, let's go to her mother's side. Her mother begins to see this darkness descend over her daughter and she's distancing herself from everyone she knows and she can't explain it and, and she's trying to work with her and talk with her and there's greater and greater and greater distance so she did the only thing that she knew how to do she just started praying constantly and fervently and one morning she woke up real early she didn't know why but she woke up real early and she went to her daughter's room and her daughter was already gone and this just felt oppressive to her so she went back to her room she got on her knees and she started God, you know, what's going on? And God says, something is happening right now. So she went into her daughter's room and started looking all, didn't even know why. She just started looking through her room and she opened the drawer of a nightstand and she found the name of a clinic. She looked it up, found the telephone number for that clinic, called that clinic. The woman who answered the phone said, I can't give you any information. She begged her and told her her story and told her, God has spoken to me this morning and I need to say something. I just want her to know I love her. And this, this young receptionist broke all the rules and said, okay, it's for you. She told her she loved her. She didn't end the pregnancy. That baby would grow up to be Gateway's first youth pastor. If you're on the inside spiritually this morning, and I know most of you are, look, look, Christ follower. The reality within which we live includes spiritual forces that hate the mission of our lives. We don't need to be afraid of that. Remember, Jesus is in control of the whole stage. But, but we, need, we need to be aware that we cannot plan our way around this reality. We're dealing with forces that do not submit to our plans. We can't talk our way around this. We can't, we can't argue our way around this. We can't work around this obstacle. This is why Paul said what he said in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to hear this from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. I'm going to read it from the screen because I can't see this. Uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. And he's going to explain this in later verses. It's a beautiful image of just kind of suiting yourself up with the stuff of your spiritual life. This is how you deal with this. You suit yourself up with your spiritual stuff uh, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's acknowledging what we've been talking about. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Listen, if if you're struggling, for instance, in your marriage, if a part of that struggle, and it certainly is, if a part of that struggle is related to the spiritual forces that are at work in your marriage, you're not going to come to the right solution if you don't take that into consideration in the equation of your thinking. If you only deal with what's inside the parentheses, you will not come to the right solution. He goes on to talk about the armor that we put on. He he mentions truth. He mentions the story of Jesus. He mentions our faith. He mentions our connection to God. He calls it salvation. He mentions 
the word of God, and most importantly, he mentions prayer. That mother on her knees because she knew something was wrong. I'm convinced we have three marching orders based on the truth that we've heard this morning. And as we go through these, I want you to identify which one uh, you're here for because you're not here by accident today. Marching order number one, we must recognize and remember the reality of the spiritual world around us. And with that, we have to maintain a healthy, Bible-informed, balanced view of that world. We've got to take this into consideration and remember it. It's a critical piece of data in every decision, in, in, in every circumstance, in every relationship. Secondly, we must address that reality spiritually. And above all, that means we must pray. Third, finally, we must not be afraid. Paul kicked that passage off with, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Look, we saw the power of God with skin on it in the ministry of Jesus. And did you notice in the story that, if you remember, this evil spirit threw the man down and then he's perfectly fine and it didn't even injure him. And my question about that is, who, who, who remembered that? Who noticed that? I mean, Luke wasn't there. Someone told him this story. And that just made a powerful impression on them. This guy was completely, this was, situation was eradicated. He wasn't even hurt. It's incredibly sweet. Which of these three orders seems most pressing for you? You didn't come this morning by accident. God is involved even here. God is involved in you being here today. And so is the enemy. Not in getting you to come, trying to prevent you maybe, trying to distract you. What reaction are impure spiritual beings prompting in you because it's happening? Is, is, is that a strange question for you? It, it should be a regular part of our diet. And what are God's intentions for you with this topic? What does God want? And why has he brought this to your attention? And why now? And finally, remember, Kingston has nothing to be afraid of, and neither do we, because Jesus is in charge. And all God's people said, Let's pray. Loving Lord, we recognize your greatness and we recognize your authority and we recognize that you're in control. And this morning we are, we are especially aware that uh, our, our reality is extremely complex and we see just a small sliver of it. And we get so convinced we live completely inside the parentheses. And Lord, we recognize this morning that outside there's a factor of five, a factor of seven. Um, stir our hearts, wake up our spirits, wake up our minds, train them toward you, and teach us, teach us to respond spiritually. Bake us into the kind of bread that has yeast in it, Lord. Make of us the people that you imagined. Because we know that's a beautiful thing. 
take uh, the lessons that have penetrated this morning and seal them, remind us of them this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.